0: well good morning morning. it's so good seeing all of you guys welcome to forest park Um, if you have your bible says go ahead and we're going to be in first corinthians uh, first corinthians chapter four Um, and before we open up the word let's go to the lord in prayer our heavenly father we thank you for your mercy and for your grace well, thank you for the truth in the gospel that as sin increase, grace increases all the more. That there is no amount of sin, no depth of sin that cannot be covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, when you died for us on the cross, you made a full atonement for our sins. You paid for all of it, our past sin, our present sins, and even our future sins. And that while we were your enemies at war against you, that is when you died for us. What incredible mercy and grace you've lavished on us. And, Lord, as we come to your word, oh, can you speak to us? Um, lord you know each and every one in this room you know what we're all going through you know our fears you know our struggles you know the sin we wrestle with can you come and minister to us can you speak to us holy spirit can you illuminate truth to us open up our ears our eyes our hearts and our minds and may we receive may we be encouraged May we be corrected. May we be convicted. May those who do not know you, may they respond to you in faith, trusting you as their Lord and Savior. And may we walk out of here saying, what an incredible Lord we have. What an incredible Savior. What an incredible salvation he has accomplished for us. I am so grateful for the church and the gift that the Lord has given us in the body of Christ. So come, Lord, and speak to us and make yourself known. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And so for the last six weeks, we've been walking uh, through the book of Corinthians. Now, in this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, really what he's trying to do is he's trying to uh, kind of reason and persuade them as he's addressing 10 issues in the church of Corinth. And really in addressing all of these issues in the church of Corinth, his main message and all of the issues that he is addressing is that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. And my hope for us in this series, and we're really going to unpack this today, is that as God's people is maturing in purity, in other words, we look more distinct from the world, we look different from the world. As we mature in purity, we will start to grow in unity. Like I said, we're going to unpack this a little bit more in our text today. But for the last several weeks, Paul's been addressing the very first issue in the church of Corinth. They were dealing with division in the church. Because the church of Corinth was so influenced by their worldly values and by their culture around them, They started viewing church leaders through the lenses of their culture, and they started to divide over church leaders, and this division led into factions, and it caused dissension among them. And so Paul's been arguing, reasoning with them, saying, look, guys, the gospel requires the church to be united, and it's the gospel that ultimately unites the church, now, I'm not going to do revision of last week, so you can just listen online. I'm just going to go straight into it and kind of set the table for us before we look into the text. But if, if we've been talking uh, about division and unity for the last six weeks. And if we have to be honest, really what's at the root of division in the church is sin. Now, let's just be honest. Like at the root of any division in the church is, is sin. And even though we've been forgiven for our sins, even though we've been set free from the bondages of sins, we're still dealing with the reality and the presence of sin. And what I mean, about, what I mean by that is, like, if we don't actively fight sin, if we don't actively resist it, And put it to death, it has a way of creeping in and finding its way into our lives. And what would we have to understand with sin is for many of us we'd like to think that sin is out there, but the reality of it is is sin out there? Yeah, it is. It's out there, but it's also in here, inside of our hearts. And so one of the many ways that we, that sin kind of makes its way in and takes a hold of us is when we're not doing the wrestling within and we're allowing outside influences, the subtleness of our culture and our world to influence us to change the way we approach life and look at things and if we have to be honest i know we don't want to say it out loud because it just makes us look bad but here's the reality whether we want to admit it or not the world around us our culture i don't care how super of a christian you are our culture and the world around us influences us in one way or another now for some It influences you way more than for others. But for all of us in one way or another, our world, our culture influences us. It affects how we look at God. It affects how we view the world. It affects how we view each other. It affects how we view ourselves and how we view the church. And this is true for us and is also true for the people during the time of the Bible. It was true for the church in Corinth. You see, what's been happening in the church of Corinth, even though they were converted, even though they were saved, even though they were made new in Christ, they still lived in Corinth. They still had the outside influences, the cultural influences that impacted how they looked at everything. And rather, in examining it and in resisting it, they slowly allowed these Corinthian values to permeate how they looked at things. And so it started to permeate how they looked at leaders. And it changed now how they address leaders. And what Paul's been doing for for about four chapters, he's been kind of drawing a distinction, saying, hey guys, look, remember this. Godly wisdom is different than worldly wisdom. And what he's trying to show them, he's trying to take this principle now and apply it in a specific way to them and how they viewed church leaders and saying, instead of viewing church leaders from a worldly perspective, we need to look at them from a godly perspective, from God's standards. And then he gives them an instruction. He says, I want you to imitate me. As your spiritual father and timothy is going to teach you my ways in christ so let's look at this text let's read it it's going to be a little complicated so we're going to try to kind of go through all of the uh, just pummel through the weeds, get the big picture out of it and try to see the difference between God's standards, world standards, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom and how it impacts how we look at the church, how we look at leaders and how we ought to live our life in light of God's wisdom and not world the world's wisdom. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. It says this. A person should think of us in this way As servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Let's just be honest. We read it and we're saying, okay, what in the world's going on? I think what would be really helpful for us, before we kind of look in the interpretation of the text, I think we need to be reminded of secular Corinthian views when it comes to church leaders or just leaders and teachers in general. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, in that culture, we said these, there were these professional teachers, debaters, philosophers, they were called sophists. And what they would be doing is they would travel from town to town and they would engage with new ideas and debates and philosophy and they would talk about topics regarding politics, religion, philosophy. And these were like the celebrities of the day. It wasn't the athletes. It was these professional teachers and so they would go from town to town, city to city, engage one another and then people would pay tons of money to watch them in action and then actually pay the money to learn from them and to follow them. And so these Corinthians would judge these professional teachers based on their style like I like a guy with a little charisma. The other guy's like, nah, I kind of like them more stoic, more serious. And They would judge them on style and on content and creativity. And so these sophists, these, these teachers, they would be focusing on what? They would be focusing on pleasing these people and working on their skill, working on their content, working on their style and their creativity because their livelihood depended on their performance. The more people followed them and the more people paid them money, the bigger their reputation, the better the living. So you kind of see now where I'm going to here. And unfortunately this worldly view, this worldly values started to impact the church of Corinth and how they viewed their church leaders. In their mind, their church leaders, their their pastors, their teachers were there to serve them. And not only were they there to serve them, they, the church, they were the judges of their performance based on Content, presentation, style, creativity, or whatever they thought was important to them. And these teachers, these pastors, and these leaders were accountable to the people because they were the ones who would determine who's a good teacher and who is a bad teacher based on what they preferred in a teacher. So what does Paul do? Paul goes, look at verse 1, and he reminds them of this. He says, a person should think of us in this way, a.k.a. a person should think of us. Who's the us? The pastors, the teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the ones they were dividing. How should they think of them? First of all, as servants of who? Servants of Christ. And then second of all, as managers Of the mysteries of God. So, if a teacher, if a church leader is first of all a servant of Christ, a manager of the mysteries of God, you're like, what in the world does that mean? A proclaimer of the gospel. The gospel is a mystery that was revealed to us by God. So if church leaders, if teachers are servants of Christ, managers of the mysteries of God, what's their job? Their job is to faithfully manage what their master, who's their master, God is, Christ is, they are to faithfully manage what God has entrusted to them. And if that is true, Who's the one who holds them accountable? God. God is their manager. They are servants of Christ. He has given them a mystery that was revealed to manage, in other words, to proclaim. He is going to be the one who's going to hold them accountable. He is going to be the one who's going to determine or judge whether they were faithful in managing this mystery that he has given them to reveal to people. And this is why Paul says in verse 3, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I don't care what you think about me. Your opinion does not matter because I'm not accountable to you. Whose opinion matters to Paul? God's opinion matters. Why? Because God is his master. God has entrusted to him this mystery and is going to hold him accountable to the faithfulness of proclaiming this mystery. And if God is his ultimate master, verse five says this in verse five, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, because what will the Lord do? He will will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. In other words, who's gonna know whether Paul is faithful or not? Yeah, God is. Who's going to reveal his intentions and his motives in handling this mystery? God is. And who's going to reward him accordingly to his faithfulness? God is. Now here's here's the point. Here's what we need to get to. Here's what we have to understand. The difference between World standards and God's standards. The world evaluates leaders based on performance. God evaluates leaders based on what? Faithfulness. In the eyes of the world, a good teacher and a good leader does not align to the eyes of God as a good leader and a good teacher. And this is why Paul is saying, do not prematurely make judgment on a leader until God comes, because the standard is different. Now, if we are not supposed to make judgment on whether he is a good teacher or not, does that mean we should just blindly follow church leaders and church teachers? Should we not be able to discern whether they're doing their job or not? Like, that's not what I think Paul is saying here, because Paul even says in another letter in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he says, test to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So in other words, in order to examine yourself, test yourself, what do you have to do? In a sense, pass judgment, determine, like look in the mirror, what's going on? And then uh, when he wrote a letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 to 20, he says, hey, do not accept an accusation against an elder or a church leader unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. And if it's found to be true, what are you supposed to do? Then you publicly rebuke that person so that the rest will be afraid. So in other words... If a church leader or a church teacher, if there is sin and the evidence is against him and he's found guilty, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to correct it. You're supposed to rebuke it. I think we can discern whether someone is a good teacher or a good leader based on Paul gives us the qualifications of an elder. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. So what does Paul mean by not judging A church leader or a church teacher prematurely. We know we shouldn't just blindly follow. We know we can discern whether he is being faithful and following the Lord. But what does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is this the church in Corinth were judging Paul and Apollos and Cephas according to whose standards? According to the world's standards. They were judging them in a self-righteous way according to the world's standards. And I think this is what Paul is addressing. For example, the world looks at a leader and they judge the quality of the leader based on the results that he is producing. So then they take that standard and then they apply it to the church leader and to the teacher. For example, let's say, for example, the church teacher is faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Week in, week out. But people are not getting saved. People are not responding. According to the world standards, that leader is a, a bad leader. He's failing. He's not being a good teacher because if he was a good teacher, people will respond. People will believe the message. People will get baptized. So the church of Corinth is saying... Yeah, we like Apollos better than Paul because we see more results with Apollos. Paul, not so much. Paul, you're not doing your job. You're not being a good teacher. Like, we want to see results. That's the world's standards. And yet, what does God's standards say? God's standards, this teacher, this preacher, this leader... He is not successful based on the results, but he's successful based on his faithfulness. His faithfulness of week in and week out, proclaiming the gospel with an expectation that God is going to move, that God is going to save. He is planting the seed. He is watering the seed. And yet, who's the one who brings the results? Who's the one that gives success? Who's the one that makes it growth? God is. That's why Paul, in chapter 3, he says, Paul plants the waters. God is the one who does the growth. So this is what Paul is addressing. So in the Corinthian view, and I think it's applicable to us today, in our view of church leaders, the first thing we have to understand is this. They are servants of Christ. They serve the church. But they are not accountable to you. They're accountable to, to God. And if we're going to pass judgment on them, in other words, if we're going to discern whether they're good leaders or not, it cannot be according to the world's standards, but it must be according to God's standards. Are they working hard and proclaiming the gospel? Are they handling the mysteries of God faithfully? Are they proclaiming the gospel and pointing us to Christ? Yes. Do we know their motives and their intentions? No. Who does? God does. Who's going to hold them accountable? God is. Who's going to disclose and reward accordingly? God is. So what does that mean for us? That means the gift of leaders that he has given us in a sense that we should trust the Lord, that he is going to hold them accountable, that these leaders are good gifts from the Lord, that they will faithfully serve. And when they don't, God will correct. God will discipline. And we might see outside things and we might not understand it. And on um, outside, there might not be results, but we see they're faithful, but we don't really know their motives or their hearts. We can't make judgments about that. Just like I can't judge you based on what's going on in your heart. I can't see it. I can see actions. I can't see what's going on inside. God does. And God is the one that's going to hold them accountable. So we need to trust God that the leaders he gives to the church are a blessing, a gift, and he's going to use them and he's going to hold them accountable. And then for the church leader, for the elder, think about the good news here. Don't worry about man's opinion. Worry about God's opinion. God is going to reward you based on your faithfulness. He is going to reveal and disclose whether you're faithful or not, your motives, your intentions. So it's both a warning and an encouragement. A warning is be faithful because God's going to hold you accountable. And the encouragement is, yes, according to the world standards, you might not be successful, you might not see any results, but as you're faithfully handling the gospel of Jesus Christ and pointing people to the Lord, the Lord is going to see your faithfulness and He's going to reward you accordingly. His judgment is the only one that matters. Let's move on. Paul is going to show um, how he models God's wisdom and how God's wisdom is contrary to worldly wisdom. Uh, Look at verse 6 here. And the rest will fly through the text, so don't worry about it. We're not going to be here forever. Verse 6 is this. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So what Paul is doing is Paul is getting real personal here to some of the people of the church of Corinth that's rejecting him that has any authority. Like in their mind, they're looking at Paul and they're saying, Paul does not line up to a good teacher according to worldly standards. He does not fit that picture. And what Paul is doing is Paul is telling them to learn from him, the apostles, to not go beyond what is written. And the question is what in the world does he mean by don't go beyond what is written more than likely he's referring to the scripture so in other words what paul is saying is if the scripture reveals god's wisdom to us then don't go beyond god's wisdom stick to god's wisdom for god's wisdom contradicts The world's wisdom. And when you follow the world's wisdom, it will only lead to pride, arrogance, and division. And the reason why Paul gives them for not being prideful and arrogantly favoring one leader over against another is because they have no right to make such judgment. He says, yo, who makes you so superior? Isn't everything you have? A gift from God? Last time I checked, you don't earn anything. Rather, everything has been given to you. The only thing you did was simply receive. And if that's the case, you have no reason to boast. And he's going to continue to defend his apostolic authority by really sarcastically comparing himself in the church of Corinth, and the point that he's trying to make, and we're going to read, and you'll be like, this is kind of harsh, but here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, okay, who's the one that models God's wisdom, and who's the one that models the world's wisdom, and whose wisdom should we follow, and who should we imitate, okay? So buckle up. Don't get lost with all of these things. Look at, look, look at this in verse 8. Again, he's now sarcastic, comparing God's wisdom, world's wisdom. Who's following it? He says, you are already full. You are already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. We are reviled. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we responded graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. You're like, okay, what does this have to do? Okay, this is what he's doing. Just think with me for a little bit. I think you can figure it out. There's two, notice there's in the text, like compare and contrast. Almost two paths. One suffering, one dishonor, awful things happen to you. That's Paul and the arrest of the apostles. Those that are ruling, those who are strong, those who are awesome, that's the church in Corinth. One represents worldly wisdom. The other one represents godly wisdom. Here's what's happening, okay? These people in Corinth, the church of Corinth thinks to themselves, because we've been saved, Because we belong to Jesus Christ, and because he is king, and his kingdom is here, we are ruling and reigning with power and authority and riches and wealth and honor. But here's the problem, and this is what we have a hard time to understand because of the worldly influence. Where's the kingdom of God? It's here, right? In a sense, it's here, but not fully. Theologians call it the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God has come in the personal work of Jesus Christ, where he has defeated his enemies. And so the kingdom is, in a sense, invisible, visible through the church, and we're kind of the outpost of the kingdom of God. And the king... It's Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is the already. But the not yet is the kingdom of God has not been fully consummated yet because Jesus Christ has not fully displayed His rule and His reigns over all the kingdom. And when is that going to happen? When He comes back and He makes everything new. So we have the already and the not yet. And where do we live? Right in the middle. (laughs) of the already and the not yet. And the church of Corinth, because of their worldly values, they're thinking to themselves, no, if Christ is king, if he rules and reigns, and we're united with him, we should be ruling and reigning right now. We should receive blessing and honor, riches and wealth. From a worldly perspective, like, like that makes sense right now. But because they're influenced by the world, Paul is like saying, Yeah, that's what you're experiencing. But let me tell you what we're we're experiencing right now. We're experiencing the complete opposite. We're experiencing pain and suffering. We're we're foolish. We're weak. We're dishonored. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're poorly dressed. We're homeless. We work with our hands. We're reviled. We're persecuted, slandered, and yet we don't retaliate. And the world looks at us and they think we're trash or scum. See, what was happening to the church of Corinth in their view of the kingdom, thinking they were already ruling and reigning, there was no room for pain and suffering. And yet Paul says, the only thing we're experiencing right now is pain and suffering. Now let me ask you a question. It's a trick question here. Which model is a demonstration of God's wisdom? The route of suffering and pain demonstrated by Paul? or success, victory, wealth, high status demonstrated by the church in Corinth. That's the point Paul's making. You're like, Neil, I don't know if I like that. Back it up. Okay, let me back it up. I think Jesus says something like this. Doesn't Jesus say in something, Matthew 16, 25, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will, yeah, will find it or save it. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled. Didn't Jesus on the cross, by the way, the route of pain and suffering accomplished the greatest victory and the greatest salvation known to the history of humanity. The road to life, is a road through suffering, pain, and death. Now, the world looks at it and says, that's dumb, makes no sense. But yet, it is God's wisdom. And what's Paul's point been over the last three chapters? God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. But what we have to understand, God, even in his foolishness, quote-unquote, cannot be compared to the greatest wisdom of this world so what paul in indirectly is appealing to them is guys you've been following worldly wisdom you're looking at us and your division is caused because you're looking at everything through worldly wisdom it does not line up with god's wisdom because who's demonstrating god's wisdom you and all your so-called victory Those who've been commissioned by Jesus Christ, who've been eyewitnesses, managers of the gospel proclaiming it, and yet they're facing pain and suffering. Look at our own Savior, the road to glory. When was He glorified? After His death on the cross. And Paul says, stop following worldly wisdom, but instead imitate me as your father in following God's wisdom. Look at verse 14, almost done application here. He says, I am not writing this to shame you, but warn you as my dear children. Paul is a way better man than me. Here's a church that wants to discredit him for any authority have, call him a bad pastor, a bad teacher. And Paul sees them as, his, as, as, as their father, and they are his children. I would want to shame them a little bit. But what does Paul say? Look, I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to break you down. As a loving father who disciplines their son. I want to correct you. I want to build you up. That's his intentions. Look look at verse 15. He says, For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What does he mean by that? In other words, because Paul planted the church, he proclaimed the gospel to them. He kind of, in a sense, gave birth through Christ to them. He's like, I'm like your dad. You're going to have plenty of coaches throughout of life that's going to coach you and point you to Christ, instructors. But you're only going to have one who kind of started this church. Because I'm your father, this is what I want you to do, verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, in the ancient world, children would follow the footsteps of their father. They would follow the occupation of your father. So if your daddy was a baker, you would be a baker. That's not true today. But that was true today. That's why Paul says, I'm your daddy. I want you to follow in my footsteps. I want you to imitate my ways in Christ that Timothy is going to remind you of. Don't imitate worldly wisdom. Imitate me and my ways in Christ that demonstrate God's wisdom. And then verse, verse 18, he says, and then we're done. We're going to do application. He says, some are arrogant as though as I were not coming to you. I'm coming if the Lord's will. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not about talking. It is a demonstration of power. What do you want? Do you want me to come with the rod and beat you or come in love and spirit and gentleness? And basically, he is setting up for chapter 5 here. So, so, so let's talk about application here. What do we know is true? What have we discovered in the text? We know God's wisdom contrary to worldly wisdom. We know that the world impacts us in one way or another, whether we want to admit it or not. It impacts the way we look at God, we look at ourselves, look at one another, we look at the church, we look at its leaders. And if we do things according to worldly standards, it's really rooted in sin, foolishness, division is going to come. So what should we do as Christians, followers of Christ? Three applications, really easy. The first thing is this, We need to be aware of the world's wisdom influencing us, if you're taking notes. Be aware. Be aware of the world's wisdom influencing you. That's the first thing. It's like, you know, first step is acknowledge you have a problem. First step is, like, just be aware of it. Just be aware. It's happening. I don't care how much you're trying to resist it. The world has influence over us one way or another. We need to be aware of it. Second step. We need to, if you're taking notes, examine. Examine. Now we're aware of it. Let's examine how the world's wisdom has influenced us. In other words, this is some soul searching to do. How do I look at God? Do I look at God from the perspective that's revealed through His Word? Or do I look at God from my upbringing, from the things I've experienced in my life, from what I'm going through right now, from what the world is saying about God? Like, how am I viewing the church? Am I viewing the church as there to to, 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 uh, entertain me and to serve me, and I will judge a good church depending on the programs that they offer for me and the pastor, whether I can relate to him or whether whether I like his style? Is church just a venue, just a location that I go to, and if I find something better, I'm just going to go to it? Or do I see church the way the Bible describes it as the body of Christ? The family of god the temple the building the field it's not about me i am part of it examine like how is the world influencing how you look at things and then after we examine if you're taking notes we need to actively resist and resist worldly wisdom and saturate ourselves with godly wisdom. In other words, it's not enough just to resist worldly wisdom. It's like taking off your clothes and running around naked. No. Paul says, take off the old, put on the new. Okay? Resist the influence of the world, and saturate yourself by, with godly wisdom really the only way you can resist worldly wisdom is by saturating yourself with godly wisdom like this is what you're supposed to be doing you have to actively resist it and saturate yourself with godly wisdom and how do we experience godly wisdom through his word through scripture not just the written word but also the living word does not paul say the christ crucified is both the wisdom And the power of God, so in other words, not only do we saturate ourselves with the written word scripture, but we constantly go back to the cross, which is a demonstration of God's power and God's wisdom. And the world looks at the cross and says, it is foolish. It is weak. And yet for us who cling to the cross, we say, no, it's God's wisdom. It is God's power. This is why we have to be a people of the cross, have to be a people of the word and saturate ourselves with it and be reminded of it daily, weekly. And I think as we're wrapping up division and unity and we're going to move on to chapter five, do you see the main point that Paul is making? The more the church matures in purity, the more it follows godly wisdom and becomes more distinct from the world as it is aware of how the world influences us, as they're examining it and resisting it and saturating themselves with godly wisdom, guess what's going to happen automatically? Unity. That's his point. It's like Paul just took us through a round trip, which we just like to go just cut across. But that's the point he's making. So it's not like unity, hey, 10 steps to accomplish unity. It's really just one like mature in purity. How do you mature in purity? Saturate yourself with, with godly wisdom. Cling to the cross. Be in the word. Let it transform, let it permeate. Unity comes. Because it changes now we look at God, it changes how we look at ourselves, how we look at one another, how we approach church, how we approach the leaders. We don't see leaders as, hey, you're accountable to me, and we tell you to jump, and you say how high, and if we're not happy with you, you're out of here. But godly wisdom says, no, you are a gift from God. We're going to trust God, holding you accountable, but God has even given us to us what a good leader looks like. It's about character here, and if you're not demonstrating the character and there's visible sin, it needs to be addressed. Praise the Lord for the plurality of elders. They're a gift. The church is a gift. Like how awesome is it that the Lord has saved us from the bondages of sin, from isolation, from wandering as an orphan, and He has adopted us in his family to be his people in the church. It's not somewhere you go to. It's what the Lord has saved you for. It's something you're a part of. We are the body of Christ. Let me me pray for us as we get to communion. Lord, Lord, we thank you for godly wisdom that has been revealed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. The life that he lived we could not live, and the death that he died we were all supposed to die. And by taking on all of our sins upon himself on the cross, he displayed Your power and your wisdom in defeating the two enemies we thought could not be defeated, sin and death. And you did it through becoming sin and dying and you displayed your power and victory over it in the resurrection. Help us, Lord, to be a people of the cross. Help us to be a people that saturate ourselves with godly wisdom. Help us to be aware of of how the world and all of its wisdom influence us in our thinking. Help us to examine, Lord. Help us to resist it. And when we are quick to forget, which we all are, may we be reminded of your wisdom and your power.